Hey guys, welcome to episode number 44 of the Rugby Strength Coach podcast. This is Keir from Rugby Strength Coach. And in today's episode, you're gonna hear from Brett Bartholomew. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last couple of years, you probably already know who Brett Bartholomew is. But in case you don't, he's the author of Conscious Coaching, which has taken the industry by storm and has sold over 10,000 copies at the time of recording. Now, if you haven't come to realize the value of the so-called soft skills, consider yourself lucky and take it from me. I've learned the hard way on numerous occasions that if you don't get buy-in, if you're not able to sell athletes on what you're trying to do as a coach, you're gonna be incredibly ineffective no matter how good your program is. So what Brett talks about in this episode is incredibly important and I would recommend it to coaches at every single level. In this episode, we talked about how Brett got his start, what led to the creation of conscious coaching and leading him to write the book and how these principles affect a number of common problems that coaches will encounter in the industry, such as getting buy-in from one's athletes, resolving conflict with other coaches and members of the staff and how to lead a somewhat balanced life as a strength and conditioning coach which I'm sure you can hear by the sound of this cold, I'm failing to do at the moment. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast and you want to check out more information like it, be sure to check out the Rugby Strength Coach community. This is an exclusive members website that I've created just for coaches, and it offers a unique combination of video lectures, online discussion, and career advice that's going to help you to take your coaching career to the next level. Each month, we offer a 60-minute video lecture from a strength and conditioning coach working at the elite or professional level of sport on a topic that is dear to their heart. This is not just the stuff that you get taught that matters when you do your accreditation, your UKSCA or your degree. This is the stuff that keeps elite level coaches up at night that really matters in their job in the real world. We've got presentations from guys that work in the NFL, professional soccer, elite level track and field, uh, the NRL in Australia and New Zealand, international rugby, professional cycling, the list goes on. We have over 30 hours of video lectures and the list is growing all the time and you will get access to all of these when you sign up to become a member of the Rugby Strength Coach community. Not only this, but you're going to get access to the online discussion forum. We have hundreds of members from all over the world working at the very, very top of the game all the way down to novice coaches. Here, you're going to be able to discuss every strength and conditioning topic under the sun to ask questions and get answers and share resources. Lastly, we also offer a special area of the forum dedicated to career development. Here, you're going to be able to get advice from coaches who have been there, done it, brought the t-shirt and worked at the highest level of the industry. Here, you're going to get advice and all the things you need to do to build the career that you want, including networking, CV writing, interview prep and climbing the ladder. So if that sounds good to you and you'd like to try it out, just go to rugbystrengthcoach.com members and enter the code word TRIAL. This is going to allow you to sign up for 24 hours at the price of just £1. If you like it, keep it and you can sign up to become a regular member. If you don't, just get in contact with us, cancel it, there's no strings attached. If you don't like it and it's not for you, no problem. But for now, sit back and enjoy the podcast. Brett, how's it going? It's going well, Kier, how are you? I'm good, man. This has been uh, well overdue. I think you and I have been trying to get this uh, on the books for about a year now and um, obviously a lot of shared connection, so it's great to have you on. Yeah, great to be on, man. Yeah, it's, like you said, it's it's about time we've had enough uh, kind of banter back and forth, but always good to kind of, uh, kind of. well, I guess we can't say put a face to a name, but a voice to a face now. And 100%, yeah. So for people that have not heard of you before, in the highly unlikely event they've not heard of you before. Cause yeah, whatever. Blowing up. Uh, what's your name and what do you do? Yeah, my name is Brett Bartholomew, uh, plain and simple. I'm a strength coach. Uh, I've been doing this for about 11 years now. Uh, the first part of my career was spent in uh, team sport, so volunteer strength coach at the University of Nebraska. If anybody's familiar with the 
American kind of collegiate system, you know that being a volunteer basically means that they have a full staff hired, um, but you're dumb enough or or smart enough, depending on how you want to look at it, to just say, screw that. I want to get in that environment. I want to learn. So all my friends thought I was nuts um, that don't understand strength and conditioning, but as many of your listeners would know, because I'm sure they've done it themselves, I just really wanted to get, uh, get in that environment. I just graduated from college. I had done an internship at a private sector facility. Then I wanted team sport experience. So they said they couldn't hire anybody. I couldn't find a job. I was like 20, 21 at the time. And so I just told them, hey, you know, I'll sweep the floors. Um, so I went there uh, and they, you know, it was awesome. Like aside from the first two months when they wouldn't talk to you and, you know, they made you earn your stripes. After that, you got to help coach, guide the guys. And it, it was just a cool thing to be a part of because Nebraska is a special place as as it pertains to strength and conditioning. After that, I went and got my master's degree with a focus on research surrounding motor learning and attentional focus at Southern Illinois. Um, and I was uh, assistant for football and basketball. And then I was the head strength and conditioning coach for around six to eight Olympic sports over the course of my time there. You know, the usual baseball, um, uh, swimming and diving and uh, golf, tennis, all the other sports. After that, went back into the private sector with athletes performance, um, ended up kind of being in charge of the, the NFL side of things, the veteran program, not combine um, military. And then we worked a lot with the UFC early days before they opened up the UFC PI. And uh, helped them kind of educate or helped educate them and worked alongside them uh, in terms of how it pertains to improving strength and conditioning for combat sports. And long story long, now I am working independently, still primarily with NBA, NFL, uh, military. I also do a good bit of speaking and consulting. And uh, yeah, that that would probably be the crux of it. Strength coach and uh, consultant, I guess. So you've coached a little bit then. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It was, I mean, I just tried to, I think, um, and maybe you can understand this here. Like I've always been something that somebody that's really self-competitive and I didn't really want to waste a lot of time in my life. Cause I had had an experience where I was hospitalized early and due to a health condition, I know how short life is. I've always kind of had that kind of prescient reminder. We had a lot of family members pass away relatively early in my life. So I feel like that's always driven me. So from a coaching standpoint, I wanted to know if I was a fraud, like right away. And so I, I took gigs and jobs and, and opportunities that like would let me know straight up, like, could I do this? Could I not? Because if not, maybe I needed to go into a different business. And, you know, my father was in the financial sector as a stockbroker. My brother's a restaurateur. So I just tried doing as many things as possible. Um, you know, I always think of the movie Eight Mile. Like I just threw myself into these situations that whether I was ready for them or not, I wanted to know that early um, cause if not, you know, okay, well maybe I'm not supposed to be a coach, but I think I ended up finding my calling and my passion. And you now I think we have the best job in the world, despite some of the limitations that still exist industry wide. Right. How, how did you end up at Exos then? Yeah, I ended up there because it was funny. You know, when I was an undergrad at Kansas state university, I knew I wanted to train athletes as early as my you know freshman year in college. I had asked my advisor at the time, I was like, Hey, you know, which route can I go? And there wasn't a dedicated like strength and conditioning path. Uh, it was a kinesiology major and God bless my advisor is an awesome guy, but I don't think he had any knowledge about strength and conditioning either. So yeah. he, he was like, well, you know, you could open up your own gym or there's this really cool thing coming, coming up now called CrossFit. <laughs> and It's oh, funny. Damn. Like, cause, yeah, but this was like before CrossFit was CrossFit. So I was like, yeah, I don't think either of those interest me. Um, so like, I just kind of floundered around for a while. Now it's like my junior year, senior year. You know, still just staying involved in in uh, 
you know, undergraduate type stuff and, you know, not knowing what I didn't know. At the time, I was um, competing as a Golden Gloves boxer. So the coaching I was doing then was I was training other fighters um, in exchange for my training because I didn't, you know, I didn't have much money as a college student. So I had two jobs. I worked at a boxing gym, the same gym that I trained. And then I worked at a sorority, which was a pretty cool gig, too. Um, Yeah, but eventually my biomechanics teacher was like, hey, there's this company, you know, you should check them out. They're called Athletes Performance. I think that might be up your uh, up your alley. So, yeah, long story short, I found out about the company. They told me no like three times because I had already graduated by the time I had applied and they were only interested in taking undergrads. Um, So I I got a flight down there to Arizona, literally said (laughs) You know, basically, I'm here. I want a gig. Let me know what I need to do. And Jeff Sassone, who I owe a great deal to, uh, who's the president of API and Exos now, is just like, all right, man, like never really had anybody crazy enough to like show up here despite <laughs> us telling him no. He goes, there's a there's a spot in the um, Florida facility. If you can be there next week, it's yours. So I went home, told my parents, you know, they didn't understand because, you know, not many people do understand our field. And I drove down there during a hurricane, Hurricane Gustav, and uh, started my internship. The funny thing was the first two weeks, nobody was there because Pensacola had basically been evacuated. and <laughs> But nobody had communicated with me. And you know how strength and conditioning is, right? Like not much slows us down or stops. So like if you haven't been communicated with, even though there's a hurricane like around the Gulf Coast, assume you're going to think, assume yeah, assume, assume it's still on. And so I went there and. You know, it's not like the town itself was getting battered with the direct path of the hurricane. So I'm not trying to like, just so nobody knows, I'm not embellishing. It was just, you know, the traditional like thunderstorm swell. I mean, it was ominous. But so I show up at the Andrews Institute. Nobody's there. I go back to the intern house. Nobody's there. All of a sudden I get a call from somebody that says, hey, like you might want to get in the bathtub. There's some inclement weather your way. And by the way, why would you be dumb enough to think that like you're coming to work today? Uh <laughs> So that was how that was how my path started. So, um, but it's a small world, right? Like I know you had experience with, with API and Exos, and uh, you know, granted, it's a lot different now than it used to be, but it was a really, really, really special place, and and still owe a lot to that company for giving me the opportunities they did. As do I, man. You know, like uh, I, I tell anyone that will listen, I, I I wouldn't be where I am if I hadn't have done the Exos courses, and obviously. I wouldn't have got to work for uh, for Argentina with that that Exos contract if it hadn't been for the the company. And it's it, it's been interesting to see them develop over, you know, a good five or six years. Very very interesting. So, getting to the the kind of main topic of the conversation, you've released Conscious Coaching, big smash as a book. It's very much uh, your kind of go to topic. That's what you're known for. Did you did you learn that the hard way coming up as a coach? Or has it always been a strength of your game? Because I'll I'll tell you from my experience, I learned the hard way. And I promised myself when I lost out to yet another job when I was 26, I said, I'm never going to be the guy that loses out to the guy with the connections. Next time, it's going to be me with the connections. And I've I've tried to, to better myself in that regard since then. Yeah, I mean, you, you might have a more interesting story than I have. I think I think it was both here. Like, you know, I, my, my, it came off my master's degree. So I, I remember I read a book and maybe you'll remember this book too. Do you remember that book, the game by Neil Strauss? Indeed. <laughs> yeah. So when I, when I was in undergrad, I remember that book and like, it wasn't about, you know, the picking up women stuff that interests me. Although no, obviously no, no, no. any college kid like loves it, but it was like them talking about the social dynamics aspect. And yeah. I was like, huh? Like, 
this stuff is pretty cool. And um, at that time, you know, I was just way more interested in studying, you know, the sets and wraps, programming, periodization theory, you know, everything like that as it started coming out. Uh, and obviously it's it's more of a nonsense space like for a younger coach, like you're not as familiar with it. Like you think that has all the answers. Um, and then my master's degree, you know, when I was doing attentional focus, you know, I remember the day that I had met Nick Winkleman and I was applying for a job at Exos actually. And uh, Nick had told me that, you know, uh, he had he had an appreciation for motor learning. I told him I did, too. That's what I was getting my degree in. He asked, you know, kind of what space in particular. I was like attentional focus. And I remember he was like, oh, well, you know, tell me a little bit about that. So we started talking about that. And, um, you know, obviously Nick then took that and, and, and ran with that and, and did a great job himself. Um, but I remember after grad school, like thinking like, OK, like this stuff's interesting. What we say matters. Cool. Like. And I see that working with a lot of college athletes. And I definitely saw that when I was interning with API, working with pro guys. Um, but what's at the core of this? Like what what's deeper, like from a human nature standpoint, like why does communicating in a certain way affect people? Like what's at the root of, you know, I, I think Taleb was a big hit, right? Like with everybody, like with the anti-fragile and, and um, you know, you think of the heuristics of Kahneman thinking fast and slow, like, um, and I didn't know about those things at that time, but the attentional focus piece took me down to this, like, why do people perceive the way things the way they do? What's behind their heuristics, their bias? And I just really want to know more about human nature. That's why, like, Robert Greene was a huge influence on me with the 48 laws of power. Like, I was fascinated by that. So it still didn't manifest itself at that time, though. Like, I was still just obsessed with coaching um, uh, in terms of the the tactical X's and O's of it. Uh, it's funny, like I'm known now, like as the conscious coaching guy or whatever, or the behavioral uh, mm -hmm. piece of it. But when I was working at Exos, I would give uh, a good amount of the presentations on strength, power, agility. Th those are the things I was most passionate about. I mean, guys there would give me a, a, a lot of shit because I was always working on changing this template, altering VLOOKUP formulas, how I could <laughs> do this for You know, and they'd laugh at me and they'd be like, why are you dicking with percentages when like, you know, the vast majority of these guys – you know, leave anywhere from six weeks to six months. It's not like you're creating a quadrennial cycle, but you know how it is. You just don't feel like a master of your craft if you're not controlling what you can control. When it when it really hit with me, because I did go through that phase that you mentioned, like at one point I was a 25-year-old kind of strength coach that like would go out and tell my athletes about like, oh, this is what we're doing with your program. This is, a, you know, we're going to have all these effects here. And at six weeks, we're going to change it up. And these guys would just look at me and be like, cool, dude, like, can we get to work now? Um, and you started realizing that just because like, you know, the sets and reps and you're excited by periodization and you, you, you love this science doesn't mean that's what your athletes connect with. Absolutely. And so I realized like working with military and pro guys in, in particular, they didn't care about that shit. They just wanted to know like, cool, let's get to work, help it make sense to me. Like, and then, you know, I'll get, uh, you see that those guys put more effort behind it. So that to me was kind of the linchpin of, all right the programs that I feel like are the most successful. Yeah, they're well-written. You know, I spend a lot of time on them, but it's definitely the guys that are most bought in and, and doing them at the highest level and, and get why it helps them that are getting the best results. And so that's where I went. Cause I just don't feel like anybody in our field was, was really locking that in. Um, that doesn't mean like I didn't freaking invent it, right? Like there's coaches that have been doing great stuff with that for a long time. I just don't think it was formally like written um there's yeah. good stuff with coaching science out there again but like what percentage of the population is reading peer-reviewed journals on on coaching science so for me and you saw it with the internships i mean the mentorships right here like how many people would go to phase one phase two phase three 
But then when it was their time to coach or lead a group, they were completely stuck yeah. on how to communicate <laughs> and how to just flow. So yeah, long story long there, like I just decided, you know what, like this is something I'm passionate about. I don't feel like I'm going to help the coaching world by being the 50th person to talk about the importance of the posterior chain. Um, you know, or I don't think that me writing a book on sprinting is necessarily going to add something that, you know, Bosch and, uh, you know, Hawken and, and Dan Paff and all these other guys like, so like, where can I help? That's where it started. And I was like, okay, I think I can dive deep into this because I do understand a good bit about the research behind behavior. I do understand the application. I've made mistakes. And so, yeah, the, the book was just about, hey, like this is how we need to think about communication. It's a combination of science and stories. We didn't want to write it like a peer-reviewed journal because then you know it wouldn't apply to a wider base of coaches that need it. At the same time, I didn't want to write it like the traditional book that like it's all bro or pseudoscience and and, you know, folksy stories. So we try to make it a mix of both, like everything in there. There's, there's 73, I think references in there all from, you know, tier one journals or books in the space and, and other resources. But we also try to just make it applicable for like the average casual everyday user or coach coming up. So old or young, it fits with your paradigm. And you know, what? I think it's, you have identified a, a real gap there within the profession because it, it's almost a cliche with, you know, you've got a coach that works with a high-level organization or, or very, very important players, and people ask, "What's he like as a coach?" And they'll say, "Oh, well, he's not that good, but he's, he, you know, the boys love him. He gets buy-in." But if you think about yeah. the opposite situation, where like nobody says, "Oh, there's this guy working with a high-level organization," and like, man, he is the best technical coach, but he's a fucking dickhead. Those, yeah, those, well, those guys I, don't exist. And you know what? Like to your point exactly, I'm so tired of this like dichotomy of like it's got to be one or the other. Like the whole that was that was where the term conscious coaching like it wasn't just this playful thing on alliteration, you know, to make it stick. Yeah. The point was like why are we so pendulum like oh it's this uh, you're either really good at the art or the science. Like I was never brought up like that. Like I I was raised in the Midwest. You were taught to be able to give a firm handshake to somebody that you know, did right by you with business and you were taught to punch them right in the nose if they didn't. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, and so for me, like the whole point of that title is just like, Hey, can we quit arguing about dumb bullshit? Like this, we need to have a 360 degree awareness of what good coaching is. It's great programming. It's good communication. Like I just get really tired of our feel. Like even when the book first came out and I knew, I knew there were going to be people that are like, Oh, so are you saying that, you know, the technical side doesn't matter? And literally, if you open up past Dan Paff's forward, who is a guy that I think, I think, you know, like if you open up and read the first five pages in no way, shape or form, do I ever say, hey, guys, um, forget everything you learned about programming. This is what matters. It says, no, we need a balance. Like we've swung way too far. Technology now is like everybody's quote unquote secret weapon. You have NFL teams like that won't let people, you know, come see what they're doing because, you know, they don't think the rest, you know, the vast majority of strength coaches know about Omega wave or fatigue <laughs> science Secret or, source. you know, yeah. And it's just like, give me a break, man. Like you're not doing anything to help create better coaches by like keeping secrets. So can we just kind of get, can we cut through the bullshit here? We're not rocket scientists or brain surgeons. So that was kind of the, the call to arms with the book is just, Hey, there's, there's this side of it, but there's also a science behind the art of coaching we're saying that you need both and this might provide some help for you, but you'd be amazed, man. I got a one-star Amazon review the other day because the book didn't have photos of athletes training in it. 
like that was a one star review. Yeah. You know, and like <laughs> despite the fact that like if you read the back of the book, it's like clearly about communication. And somebody goes, I would have liked to have seen more photos of athletes training. You want to find those people. Of course, they're like anonymous reviewers. Right. And you want to be like, hey, write a book. You know what I mean? Like the it's customer not as, is not always right. <laughs> yeah, it's just hard, right? Like you want to help as many people as possible, but talk about heuristics and bias. Everybody's got this view of what they want it to be, and they don't understand that like anybody that's written anything or produced any content knows that that's time away from your family. You know, you doing that isn't you trying to say you have all the answers. You're just trying to contribute. Like I would never advertise this book as like the cure all to your problems. It's like it's a piece of your con- it's a piece of the conversation. Like I hope you like it. It's not perfect. I'm a coach. I'm not a, I'm not Ryan Holiday, um, but I wanted to help. Like, that's the key of it. Yeah, and then you can look back in five years and say, oh, I've changed my mind about this. I've changed my mind about that. And uh, right. get, some, yeah. get some abuse for having changed your mind. <laughs> yeah, no, no question. But, like, it's funny, right? Like, our audience is like, you could write a book. Like, you today could write a book on, like, my experience is coaching rugby while in Japan. And then somebody would be like, yeah, but you didn't talk about – um, coaching in Portugal and you're like, yeah, cause I'm not in Portugal. I'm in Japan and it wouldn't matter. Like our field is so ridiculous. Now with, with conscious coaching and being cognizant of the uh, soft skills, obviously not soft, but that's how people would commonly term it. Yeah. Obviously there are going to be people that are definitely more biased towards one side of the, you know, the art, the other to the science and Obviously, I think some some guys are, are never going to have the energy of, of, of another and some guys are never going to be as technical as another. So thinking about that as, as a head of department, do you think there needs to be close attention paid to the mix of coaches that you have in a department or trying to align certain personality types of coaches with certain personality types of athletes? Because that's another thing that I've seen people do at high level uh, soccer clubs, for example. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And and there's a lot of ways we can take it. Like it's, it's kind of like now everybody's battling this whole concept of learning styles, right? They're saying, well, if somebody, did you read that article basically that came out that said learning styles don't exist? Or have you heard people kind of bantering about that? Yeah, sir. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so like, you know, th- some people are saying, well, somebody can say that they're more auditory, but then that's a pretty fixed mindset thing to do. You know, they start bringing in Car- Carolyn D- uh, Dweck's research you know, cause then you're making them believe that like, yeah, I hear you. Um, but like, there are some people that respond better to different people. Like it took me a long time as a coach to realize that not everybody's going to connect with me. Like, that's just, that's how it is. Right. Like I could, I could want to get to know them. I could want to be inter- I could show that I'm interested. I could do everything. And some people just don't gel. And I talk about that in the book. Like, listen, the book and all this stuff, I'll never say that, you know, everybody's going to like you. That's just not how we're made. Uh, there's there's probably a lot of intrinsic factors behind that as well that aren't even well understood by the research. But a lot of it just goes into judgments and preconceptions. So I do think there's value in, in helping align. I, yes, I think there's definitely value in having coaches that all have different styles. I know if I was the head SNC of a team today, I would not want to create a bunch of me's, right? Like I would yeah. want... I would want a coach that perhaps is a little bit more, uh, you know, introverted a little, which is funny because I'm, I'm really introverted when I'm not coaching. Uh, but you get what I mean. I would want a, a slew of personality styles and backgrounds because it's just like programming principles, right? Like we want different rep ranges for different adaptations. Well, coaching and, and their approaches are very much like that. That's that's a, a, um, 
a presentation that I'm building right now based off the book. I call it periodization for people. And I align like the way we periodize our programs is not very different than how we should focus on the nature of our interactions and the environment that we create. So to your point, yeah, I do think there is value in that. I, I think it's, you've got to be careful not to typecast. And, you know, in the book, I talk about archetypes and it's funny, like the archetypes are not a replacement for disc. They're not a replacement for Myers-Briggs. Again, they're just to add to the conversation. Um, but there's strength in generalities. I think people, you know, somebody asked me to go, oh, what would Carl Jung think of your archetypes? And I said, well, if Carl Jung knew why they were created, I think he'd appreciate it because it's not that different than Jungian approaches of like, you know, hey, we're seeing common themes and commonalities. These are ways that you could approach the situation and it may work better for others. And plus, you know, Carl Jung is not really the, you know, the authority on that too. You talk to Adam Grant, uh, the, he's a he's a professor of organizational psychology, uh, organizational behavior rather at at Wharton, and he you know he says the Jungian research has the validity and accuracy somewhere between a horoscope and a heart rate monitor. Um, so none of these you're never going to have personality tests or quizzes or assessments or anything that is definitively going to place somebody because that's not how human beings work. You also have to look at the nature of the questions right here, like if you have forced choice questioning or people only have a certain number of options, like, and those options ignore the context in which the answer is given. I think it's like, the, you know, it's like all, all models are incorrect, but some are useful. Yeah, no those, question. Those well, heuristics exist for a reason. Perfectly stated, perfectly stated. So, you know, I do, I think you have to want to have a wide swath of like personalities on your coaching staff. Yes. I do think more people should focus on personality profiles, not, it doesn't have to be anything formal. Just get out Excel, understand who are the only kids, understand socioeconomic backgrounds, understand what kind of music they like and why, who their favorite coaches were and why. Like I started creating these things at a real low level with Google Sheets and like Google Forms. I ask really non-intrusive questions that give me insight as to their personality and behavior. And that coincides with my programming and the way I communicate. So you hit the nail on the head, man. And, and that's something that's always struck me about your work too. Like I know you're a socially dynamic individual and, and people may see you referenced it when we were off air, right? Like you have some tattoos, you have this and that. So some people may assume that you're this kind of brash, really overconfident guy, but I guarantee you, you wouldn't be having the success you are in Japan if you didn't know how to tone that down and, and ride that wave, so to speak, and deal with other athletes in other ways. Nobody would respond to you. I'm, I'm a sensitive soul. <laughs> Deep down. <laughs> yeah, yeah you're, you're Drax from Guardian of the Galaxy. That's it, man. <laughs> now, like, we've, we've, we've kind of talked about coaching staff, coach-athlete interaction. But I know uh, from speaking to uh, a couple of friends of mine that visit you, um, Ryan Hicks and Sam Portland, I used to work with them. They said a massive thing that they took away from, from meeting you was your focus on coach psychological health and making sure that uh, you as a coach are actually in, in the right kind of physical and mental state to, to do your best work. Because it, it's almost like a cliche or a running joke that the higher up you go as a coach, the worse your body gets, the worse you, you look after yourself. And you know, you and I mentioned off air there are no happily married strength coaches in the thirties and forties who work at a high level. Can, can right. you talk a little bit more about that and how maybe we need to address that as a field? Yeah. I, I just think, you know, here's the reason why I have an opinion on it. And, and there's, there's several one, again, I went through something pretty early in life that kind of just put my values front and center for me. And 
I think we all can work our butts off. I think we can all work hard. I don't think a balanced life exists. I'm going to say that right off the bat. I don't think there's work-life balance at all. I think that there's seasons, no different than there's off-season, in-season, things like that. Like there's seasons. You're going to be like it's August right now. No, nobody in the United States in the private sector is is like coaching tons of pro athletes right now. Why? Because football is in season and basketball is getting close to it and baseball is still rolling. Right. Like so right now there's times that they can work on other aspects right now. I'm shoring up some pieces of my programming. So um, the, the point is, is, you know, when I was in the private side uh, first coming up, when I was in the collegiate side, you see, I remember the first one of the first books I was ever given non-trained relating book when I was in uh, collegiate SNC was first in last out lessons from the FDNY or the New York fire department. An awesome book, awesome message. Great. But we were given that book as kind of a means of saying like, Hey, this is expected of you. And that's fine. Like at that time I loved it, dude. Like at that time I'm like, well, cool. I'll wake up at 4am. I'll go in and do the workouts. You know, I'll do this. I stayed till eight 30. I didn't have a wife. I didn't have anything. Like I had a crock pot, you know, and I had some girls casually that I dated on the side, but like, you're just kind of living that life. Right. Yeah. And then you get your first job, you know, your true first true job. You're there all the time. You want to show everybody the hardest worker. And it's not hard because like, our job's awesome. So it's, it's pretty easy to like get lost in four hours of writing programs and, and going through some movement related stuff, what you want to do for speed, agility, what have you. But you start getting to this point where I'll never forget <clears throat> seeing a couple coaches in uh, along my path that like they, they were just now starting to find busy work. Like they had a family at home, you know, it'd be eight 30 at night. I'd be walking out like they wouldn't go home. And I'd be like, what, you know, what are you working on? And it's just like, Oh, like, they're scanning T nation or doing this. And I'm like, really? Like I'm thinking about that. And like, you're looking at, and then like you start paying closer attention to their behavior and, and even just reading and talking to more strength coaches, you start hearing about coaches that basically live off entering. You start seeing guys that are so like, so, you know, it's, it's crazy. Like every day they do the same thing at the same time. It's this highly routinized. There's no fluctuation in life. And you start, I just remember thinking like, how are my, how would my athletes like, I don't, I don't tell them to be like that. You know what I mean? And I, I'd work around, I'd work around military guys and they'd say the same thing. They'd be like, man, like everybody thinks that our job is this, 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 and this, like guys aren't always like that. They're not always wired on the time. Like they come back from deployment, they go home to their family. But like, I don't feel like strength coaches did that. You see a lot of divorce, you see a lot of, you know, guys sacrificing their own health. And then they do it under this, Mike Boyle's right about this. They do it under this like martyr, like guys of like, it's not about me. I'm a, you know, I'm a servant based coach. It's for the athlete. Like everybody else that's doing this and that isn't really coaching. And it's kind of like, are you just kind of wearing this tough guy cloak because it's something that you believe in or that you feel like you're forced into doing? Cause I would say that there's a lot of really smart, productive people in the world that are not really concerned with being the last one to hit the light switch. When you're an intern, when you're a volunteer, when you're a GA by all means. And if you have actual work to do, like burn the midnight oil but I think there's a lot more strength coaches just kind of doing that shit for a facade, you know, and just kind of to pound the chest because they think that's a quick way to provide Japanese like, work that, culture. That's yeah, it. it's like, like literally guys will traditionally they will sit there at their desks until the, the boss is left and then five minutes later they're out the door. Right. And, you know, and I know the, the funny thing in Japan is like if, if you and I, for example, work for the same company, you work 10 hours a day and you make a million bucks a year for the for the company. I work five hours a day and make a million bucks for the company. I would be seen as lazy and you would be seen as the hard worker, even though I'm twice as productive. 
No, no, no. Uh, yeah, no question. We have like a coal mining culture. And like I, I can sit here and say this. You know why? Because I burn out at like friggin 28. I burn out because I couldn't quit. And it was my fault. It wasn't like, oh, I want somebody to feel bad for me. Like I just I, I had bought into this idea that if I was doing something like even watching TV or doing something for recreation, that I wasn't being productive. I thought every minute in the car had to be a podcast. Every moment at home, I had to be reading a book. Every and I and I'm you know part of that I do I do listen to podcasts in the car. I do read a lot. I do like those things. But it was so bad that like I would turn friends down that wanted to go see a movie because I thought it was gonna be a waste of time. And I just started looking at myself and I was like, what am I doing? Like this isn't this doesn't help me be a better coach or more relatable. Like I think at one point a lot of it here's 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 where it came from with me. I've always had this underdog mentality. And I've never, I've never breathed my own exhaust or bought my own hype or anything like that. Like for me, I take that like Kimberly Clark approach, that CEO, I think his name was Darwin Smith, where he said, you know, my secret to success is I never stop being or trying to be qualified for the job. And so I always just look at it. And so it took me almost like getting married. This is how sad that is. It literally almost took me getting married to realize like, okay, maybe I don't need to read every single article on periodization that comes out. Maybe I don't need to read everything that somebody reposts that talks about velocity-based training. Like, I, I get the gist. Yes, we can always learn more, but I think we're fooling ourselves if we think every piece of literature, every piece of research, every blog article, all this stuff is providing just, oh my gosh, this is completely new. This is what's holding me back. But that's what social media has done. Like, in that standpoint, like, we're, we're made to believe if we're not participating in this conversation that we are lost. So anyway, that's, that's where a lot of that came from is I think if you want to be a coach, that's worth a shit over the entire span of your career. I think you have to be selfish. I'll say that spot out. I think that like the best way to give back to others is to like take care of yourself first. That's why when you're on an airplane, they tell you to put your oxygen mask on before giving it to somebody else. Um, Cause if you just whittle yourself down, yeah, you'll be good for like five, 10, maybe 15 years, 20. If you're like one of these really intense guys, that just is like, you know, is, is like kind of a sadist, but eventually your work is going to suffer if you don't give back to yourself and your family. Bottom line. Oh, <laughs> I mean, all, all the, all the things you're talking about, I can, I can 100% relate to. And maybe, uh... maybe you should write a book on that. I mean, think about it. Like you have a really unique perspective on that kind of culture like you get it on so many levels. You'd be surprised, man. That's, that's what made me write conscious coaching is I just thought there was something I was passionate about that I understood that I didn't think people were talking about enough. And it came out like, I'm dead serious. Like, I think you would write something killer on what you've witnessed and experienced. Cause you know, why not? Think, you know what I mean? Unfortunately, I'm, I'm still in the, in the process of learning those lessons rather than writing about how I learned them. <laughs> but that's, that's what I'm saying. Like, uh, like I, you know, I'm, I'm in the process of learning this stuff too, right? Like I don't have, just because I wrote a book on communication doesn't mean I have it aced. I, I like to think I'm pretty good at it. And most people would, would, would say that I work really hard at it. But nobody that writes a book is like the man at it. That's why, you know, they go back and make adjustments and, you know, they have, they have other things. My point is, is you have a really unique perspective and I appreciate that you're vocal about it. Cause you know, what's going to make it change Kira is like more coaches saying like, yeah, you know what? I can be pretty good at what I do and still create a life in the small amount of spare time we have, but I can still create a life and it doesn't have to be this, like put it this way. How many dentists do you see on Twitter saying I did 52 root canals today? I'm better than you. <laughs> no, not many. <laughs> 
No, no, because people would laugh at us. People yeah. would laugh at us and be like, uh, you're a weird. I, like I have a lawyer that worries about how many cases he's won, but I don't think he tries taking on like 15 cases at once because that wouldn't really bode so well. Absolutely. And you know, the thing about the business is I, I think sometimes people look down upon people trying to make money outside of their, their primary coaching job. But the, the fact of the matter is, uh, it, definitely in the UK, I don't know about the USA, but there is such competition for places that have pushed wages down. You're almost forced to do that to be able to live. And also, if, eventually, if you can build a successful enough like part-time business as a coach, that's going to allow you to have more freedom in your decision-making process and not feel you have to take a job where you may be not unhappy or you, you have to give up too much control. So I think ultimately it does help you as a coach and it's, it's going to allow you to serve athletes better if you do have that kind of stuff going on. Yeah, no question. And you and I talked about this. Um, you and I talked about this as well. Like, And I, I was awful at this. I thought I when I was in the collegiate setting, I thought anybody doing anything online or doing anything on the side was sell out, sell out just because mainly that's what I was taught. I was taught that that's what that you know what I mean? It's passed down like people would just sit there and be like, oh, we're coaching all day and they're out there doing this and doing that. And then now look, right. There are so many there are so many strength coaches that whether they want to admit it or not, they have something going on in the side and it's OK. Like it's you can do that and still be it's it's not okay if it starts interfering with your work it's not okay if it compromises the integrity or privacy of those that you're training but if you are doing something whether it's a podcast or whether you know look at the guy look at what jay demayo does at cvasps if you know yeah like just do something that betters the field you know and i we laugh for anybody listening like i was telling Kier like my wife almost slapped me because when the book came out like i self-published it there's no big publisher pushing copies of my book around. I didn't pay a bunch of people to do testimonials. I don't have that kind of money. Like I didn't know who would read it and I didn't, I didn't really want to promote it. And then I just realized, and it took my editor too, my editor who is good friends with Ryan holiday and was just like somebody that could give me perspective. Cause like he goes, dude, you're like an abused animal. He goes, why does like, why is promoting your book such a bad thing? Like, and I go, you don't understand it. Like our field, like it's not like another field. And he's like, I understand that you put something together that you think will help people. And if you don't promote it, that effort was lost. And I was like, fuck, man, that's a good point. So I just started putting it out there and then other people started doing it. And it's amazing, right? Like I just asked people, I say, hey, if you like the book, would you mind telling a friend about it? Like, it's pretty honest, you know, like if you don't like it, cool, like, you know, throw it, use it as scrap paper or whatever. But if you like it, could you please share it? Because put a lot of time into that and I wanted to help. But we there's nothing wrong with doing these things. I'm still trying to learn it. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, I think that's the next big thing, right? Like when people are like, Oh, what's the next big thing in strength and conditioning? I go, I can tell you what it's not. It's not a new sprint drill. It's not a new method of like squatting. That's going to completely supersede back squats, front squats or safety squats. I don't even know if it's a new reactive agility test. You know, I think those things are critically important. I always got to throw that disclaimer in there. Otherwise people will think I'm not a coach anymore. Like those things are critically important. I think the biggest thing is coaches waking up, realizing they're in the 21st century, valuing what they do, helping mentor others to value what they do and changing the way this industry is done. So more good coaches can get jobs and the shittier ones can get weeded out. You know what I mean? Like that's that's what I think. I think that coaches are going to realize there's not that big of a difference in our field from all these other fields that can contribute in other ways. And more people are going to get involved in that. Like you said, comparing of the fields, 
a, a major problem that I have with the field is the disparity between what students are qualified to do and what they understand and what they're comfortable with when they leave university and what's required to thrive in a professional setting. And a lot of people say, well, of course, you know, you, you finish your master's degree and you need to do more training to be able to uh, become a coach. But then my counter to that is if someone had just qualified from dentist school or dentistry school or qualified from medical school, would you feel comfortable having an appointment with them? And of course, everyone would say yes. But if you asked the average professional strength and conditioning coach, would you be happy to have a, a student fresh out of university coach your team? The answer is almost invariably no. And I think that's like, that's another thing that we have to work on as a field and, and address those problems. So yeah, I'm going no, to segue now on, on the topic of, of conflict. Conflict is rife in professional sport. Um, if I think the high, the higher up you go, the stronger the personalities can get because you know, if, if you're there, it's because you really want to be there. The stakes are high. There's a lot of, of arguments on a daily basis. How do you approach conflict? So, you know, we, we look at conflicts, a really interesting thing as it pertains to the research, you know, there's, there's a lot of deep work done on this by not only folks like Dr. Sophia Jowett and, and several others, but the folks that go a little bit deeper and say, it's not even just about conflict. It goes into judgment perception. And, you know, the book talks about this in depth, but I'll give kind of like a little bit of a run through and, and I'm doing, I have a talk that I gave on this at CVASPs you know, conflict, like understanding, it's just like a training method. Like if I want to use a certain training method, I have to understand what it does to the body, how it affects the physiology. So conflict's the same way. Like how does conflict arise? The number one reason conflict arises is because of the fact that we're social beings, right? So the amount of interaction we're going to have is going to lend itself to some imperfect scenarios. Um, competition over scarce resources, which I'm writing an article about this on Simply Faster that um, hopefully will come out in the next month or so. Like, um, and then like just kind of schadenfreude and schadenfreude is a term that talks about, and there's great research on this based out of Japan. Actually. Um, I have the reference in the back of the book. It's an article called when your pain is my gain and schadenfreude is this term that talks about like when we see somebody that is in like a space that we perceive to be one that like, all right, this space is really, I'm passionate. Let's talk about this in our industry, right? I'll give a prime example. Um, somebody talks about speed. Speed is a really like polarizing topic in our industry, right? Like, so let's say somebody today writes like the ultimate speed manual for coaches. Somebody's going to be like, who the is this guy? You know, and, and if they have a book on speed, they're going to feel like, this guy's a charlatan. I'm going to read this. I'm going to poke holes in this because they feel like that person is a, possibly a threat. Um, they feel like they're moving in on territory that they're passionate about or because it attacks their own kind of self-identity of, hey, I'm the speed guy. And so when we see people that we feel threatened by or envy or, or like envy on any level whatsoever, we actually get a reward uh, or we actually have our, our brain lights up in the reward center of our of our brain uh, when we see them struggle or fall from grace. A most common, the most ubiquitous example is like celebrities. Somebody can hear about a celebrity that like, oh, this person did this or that. 2007 Britney. Yeah, right. <laughs> there you go. That's awesome. You know, and people are like, oh, they, you know, like 
here it cool this pop star and i'm tired of hearing these people with all their millions whining and this and this and this like yeah like you know how does it feel you know and so and they talk about that it's these parasocial relationships where one person may know everything or a lot of things about somebody and that other person doesn't know anything about them so that creates this kind of like strife um, and this viral envy. So you, you've got to read the research and you've got to, the, the book is, you know, we touch on it in the book and, and talk about it. The, the whole presentation that I give on it is called the upside to your dark side. And it talks about how these things can like influence from a good standpoint, bad standpoint or whatever. But to think that at our core, we're that base level that we still have a response in the reward center of our brain. When we see somebody we're threatened by or envy or what have you fail, that's pretty messed up. Yeah. You know, so then it's like, okay, well, we know that conflict is part of human nature. There's scarce resources. We're all trying to survive, whatever that means. Like, go back to evolutionary biology. That's like the tribal behavior. Today, it's, you know, competition over, I would say, almost like attention because of social media. That's why, like, um, a lot of what I'm studying right now is how social media uses attention engineers through Silicon Valley to keep you attached to apps. Um, Instagram. You to uh, Sam Harris's podcast with uh, Tristan Harris about that? No, no, so I haven't. He he talks about that in the podcast. He's he's actually an ethicist. I believe he works for Google, and he he talks about all the techniques that the the big tech companies use to to grab attention, and basically the like the moral minefield of doing so. Because the interesting thing is, they know how to push your buttons to get you to basically dedicate an unhealthy amount of time to to those apps. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's exactly it, right? And the, they, they all attack. It's almost like there's there's one company. It's like I think it's called Dopamine LLC, and it's literally people that, that, that they've studied. Like, hey, if um if I give Kier a certain amount, if I withhold Instagram likes until a certain time of day where I know he's most active, and then he logs on and I show him these thirty likes that he really got prior, but now he's getting this bigger like casino based jackpot reward, you know, response of like. Oh, dude, your your post is lighting up. You better keep engaging. So it's it's pretty funny. Like you look at things like that. Um, you also look at like, all right, now what do you do with with this conflict? There's proactive and reactive forms of conflict management. And again, we talk about it in the book. Like, is it best to isolate the situation? How do you how do you determine what the best course of action is if you have an athlete stirring up shit, or if you have a coach that's breaking protocol and you know, what's the best way to confront them? Well, you know, and it's not like, hey, be respectful of the other person's feelings. Look them in the eye and tell them, like, there's real science that talks to you in a non-guru way about how to approach these things based off perception. So that's what we're digging into a little bit more now because um, conflict is a reality in our field, uh, whether it's, you know. Yeah, no question. And that's one of the first things we say is people think all conflict is toxic. F that. The more I put it this way, I say this, and this is I know this is kind of like a cheesier trite phrase, but I say you have to cross more wires to create more sparks. Bottom line, you yeah. know, like if you have conflict, that's a catalyst, right? Like I, the worst people are passive aggressive people. I love my best friend to death, but he is the biggest passive aggressive punk ever. <laughs> and like he'll give me a response that is basically one you would expect from C3PO. And I'm like, dude, if you ever answer me like that again, or if you ever just ignore a call because I, you know, X, Y, and Z, I will hit you in the gut. Um, <laughs> and he's like, well, like you like conflict. I go, no, I like what conflict brings. Like it brings a resolution. Like you being passive aggressive just means this thing is going to fester and rot. And then it's just going to get big. And we've all dated people like that. I don't mean to be personal, but everybody has had that relationship 
where they're with somebody that they cannot break down that communication wall. And so, um, and now yeah, she's got your sausage dog. <laughs> and now, yeah, yeah. Not only that. Yeah. And she's got your passwords and she's putting things on social media and you're screwed. Oh, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, no conflict is immensely. And, and so, yeah, we talk about it in the book. You know, if I ever do, I hate writing you. If I ever write, it's just because I'm really passionate about something. If I ever did a follow up, to the book, it would be the dark side of conscious coaching, like talking about how conflict, chaos and control, you know, is a two way street and how that how understanding those kind of dark sided traits can can make you better as a coach. So it's an interesting field. And that's you're right. That's where a lot of my um, my primary excitement is right now, because I think there's a lot to be explored. Have you got any other uh, additional projects that are in the future for you? Yeah, absolutely. So two big things. One, I'm partnering with a university here in the States to make the book a course for undergraduate students, which I'm really pumped about, um, mainly because I remember when I was an undergraduate, like, you know, you're going through exercise science or kinesiology degrees and people are trying to push you the pre-med route or physical therapy. There was no human performance or strength and conditioning or coaching. Um, so, you know, from a soft side, like I, I kind of hope that there's like a young version, you know, of me or something like that in a classroom somewhere, like waiting to hear more about strength and conditioning. And I hope my book can be a catalyst for them. And I just think it's cool because hopefully we get to create, you know, more coaches that, you know, want to bring better stuff into the profession. Um, I'm also working with a company and I never, I guess I never thought I'd say this to create an online course um, surrounding kind of, uh, I'm trying to figure out how to explain it because we're still, we're still really teasing out the content um, in terms of what it's going to look like, but it's going to help coaches focus on the intangibles of what can make them better in their career. So, it focuses on two areas, improved craftsmanship and sustainability within the profession. And so that was like a big survey that I had sent out recently because this company and I are trying to collect data to see the most common pain points and issues that people in the field feel like they're having, you know, where they feel like they're stuck, what scares them the most, what do they like the most? Because we feel like, again, there's a lot of stuff that teaches people tactics and, and that kind of stuff, which is great. That, that needs to keep coming. Uh, but we also need some things that kind of arm us with different weapons and resources in terms of managing our careers and uh, creating autonomy so that we can continue to do our job at a high level. Does that make sense? Yeah, man. I'm, I'm going to be keen to see how, how it turns out. Yeah, it's going to be a six to, it'll be probably like a six to 18 month project because we haven't even started like kind of producing it yet. And um, again, I, I'm completely new to this. I've just, this is the first time I've ever tackled anything like this and I'm going to have to balance it with our coaching schedule and family stuff and what have you. Um, so I'm not going to promise it. Like it's not coming out like January, 2018. Um, what will come out before any of that though, is we're doing a, a field guide manual for the book. So there's been a lot of staffs that have just said, Hey, we like the book. Are there practical and applied activities that you could tease out that we could do for like, you know, intern development sessions, staff development sessions, things like that. So we're coming out, it's going to be like, you know, basically a $10 download PDF, um, that references stuff in the book and gives, gives coaches like practical, no bullshit things they can do to like make themselves better based off the content of the book. So that hopefully will come out, uh, before the holiday, uh, holiday being holiday season, like Thanksgiving here in the States or Christmas, but you know, like it just depends, right? Like if I have an influx of guys next week, I, that other stuff has to go on the back burner. Yeah. And I'm trying to like, I'm trying to delegate more. Like I've, I've tried taking on some young coaches that they want mentoring in exchange for that mentoring. Like I'm trying to have them help me with some things. I'm just really, really, really bad at delegating. And it's something I'm working on a lot myself. How are you with that, by the way? Cause you, 
you like stay massively busy. Are you pretty good at delegating? I'm an assistant. Um, oh, I'm I jealous. Just, well, you. This is this is the tricky thing. Coaching is is not a scalable profession. That's what I've realized. So, I'll, I'll be completely honest. The reason that I have my online community is because that is a scalable venture, and it means that I'm not having to increase the amount of work that I do as business increases. So whether I have one member or a thousand. It's, it's pretty much the same amount of work to me. So that's that's one thing, if anyone's listening and want, wants advice, that's where I'd point them in that direction. But the other thing is I listened to, uh, uh, it was actually at the event in Sydney where I came up with the idea for the community. There was a guy named Chris Ducker who has his, he runs a business out of the Philippines with something like 350 staff. And he, he wrote a book about virtual assistants and his phrase is, do what you do best and delegate the rest. So yeah, I, I kind of I suck that. at that. I extend that to do what only I can do, or what I love to do more than anything else, and then basically I try and force myself to teach someone else to do it for me. And the way that I do it is, if if it's uh, an electronic task, I just go screen record on um, on the computer, save the video, write up a PDF with the written instructions, send it over, and then hold the hand for two weeks. And after that, just pray it doesn't go wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, no question. And so I, I'm really, I'm really trying to get better at a lot of that stuff. Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't have an assistant right now. I've thought about it. And, uh, you know, I, I just really like, this sounds silly, but I really like the old version of like mentorship and apprenticeship. So I always try to find people that are like, uh, if they want guidance with something, I'm, I'm always happy to guide, but think about this, right? Like mentorship and apprenticeship, that wasn't just about like, hey, what can you give me? That was like, I'm gonna give back to you. And I, I uh, Robert Green. That's that's the whole crux of uh, yeah, history, right? Yeah, and I remember like when I was a young strength coach, like, and I mean young is in like new at the field. Like, I would never reach out to anybody without being like, what can I help you with? You know, yeah. like, because I just thought like, this dude's got a family, he's got this and that. But like, you'd be surprised. Well, you wouldn't be surprised because you put a lot of stuff out, but. I get, I'll wake up and I'll have 15 Instagram direct messages. And some of them just start like this coach, please send me a free copy of your book. Thanks. Or it'll be like, well, send coach, me a program. Or, yeah, yeah. Or somebody the other day goes, how about this one? Coach, what's the one thing, you know, that nobody else knows that I should know? Like, can you please, <laughs> can you please give me the five steps? I need to be a great coach. And you're like, dude, I would love to help you. But one, there's nothing I know that like, nobody else knows at least that nobody else would want to know right like that's a deeply personal thing um and then two it's just it's amazing and i'm not going to get into millennial shit because it's not millennial stuff it's just it's people not being socially intelligent sometimes yeah. but if there's anybody listening to this and you want to connect awesome i would you know i'm happy to connect with you please reach out um more importantly i you know or equally as important though i would love to get you involved with some of this stuff because you're only going to learn it one way you know, you're only going to learn like what it takes, like not by advice I give you or Kier gives you or whoever your favorite strength coach gives you. You're going to learn you're going to like learn from doing stuff and putting skin in the game. And I think that's like the theme Kier. Like that's what I respect a lot about you, man, is like coaches that put skin in the game and like open themselves to criticism, you know, bite back, you know, positive support, negative, you know, all this kind of stuff. Like that's who people should be following now like and i don't mean following as in social media i just mean like you've got to learn from that because it's easy to sit there in the shadows and criticize condemn and complain but like put something out like put your ideas on wax and see how it goes right like yeah um, 
so I just think coach development's a big thing right now that we need to focus on. And those are, that's kind of my rant on it, man. Thanks for, thanks for being patient with me, trying to get all that vomit of consciousness out. Hey, I appreciate it. Where can uh, people find you? Yeah, pretty easy. Uh, I'm probably most active on Instagram now. It just allows for one, the most transparency. You get a CN image and then you see context. It's really simple. Um, that's at coach underscore Brett B. Uh, you can go to my website, BartholomewStrength.com. That will be shifting over into what my new project is, um, which is called the Bridge Human Performance. So BridgeHP.com is the best way to to stay in contact there. But I would just say through the Instagram uh, uh, website or on Twitter. I'm not really a, a Facebook guy much these days, but reach out. Love to connect. Thanks, Brett. That's been awesome, man. Yeah, thank you, Kier.